Hello, you're listening to the Let's Talk Future podcast series presented by Oppenheimer. If you're interested in the economy, the markets, and investing in general, you've come to the right place. This series was created to fascinate and enlighten every type of investor. Curious about the latest consumer trends? How about innovation in healthcare or technology? The Let's Talk Future series definitely has you covered. Through timely and relevant conversations, we deliver some of the best thought leadership in the financial services industry. Our renowned hosts and guests explore big questions and big ideas and leave you with actionable insights. In this episode, our featured guest is Kristen Owen, Executive Director and Senior Analyst of Oppenheimer's Sustainable Growth and Resource Optimization Research Team. And our host is Jane Ross, Managing Director of Investment Banking. This episode was recorded on August 7th, 2023. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to our episode called The Future of Feeding the Planet. I'm your host, Jane Ross, and we're here again with Kristen Owen, an executive director and senior analyst in Oppenheimer's Sustainable Growth and Resource Optimization Research Team. Now, food inflation has been one of the big stories and concerns in this economy as food prices have ridden steadily since 2020. And there's a lot that goes into that. supply chains, weather, geopolitical events, and the like. At the same time, we're experiencing tremendous innovation in food production with technology and AI driving regenerative agriculture. Also, we're seeing major advances in biotech seed technology. So here, we're going to talk about all of that and the companies that investors should know about. Kristen is the perfect person for this discussion as she spends a lot of her time out in the field, as it were, on agricultural technology and infrastructure. So let's get right to it and welcome back, Kristen. Hi, Jane. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. Okay, another food pun. Let's start by setting the table, as it were, and let's talk about food inflation. What's going on there? Jane, you highlighted a lot of the topics that we spend time talking to investors about. Really, this backdrop of COVID, supply chain disruptions, and now inflation. And when we break down that inflation factor specifically, you know, one of the largest drivers of inflation has been in food. We see it in food, we see it in energy. And I think we've all felt that just personally. Uh, if you bought eggs over the last year, you probably paid something like five times as much as those eggs cost you in 2021. I don't know if you've tried to buy a chocolate bar in the last six months. Yes, I have. But that chocolate bar, <laughs> that chocolate bar probably cost you up to 20% more than if you were to have bought it this time last year. And it is broader than that. According to the United Nations, food inflation peaked in March of 2022. That was in the immediate aftermath of the Russia invasion of Ukraine. In the U.S. alone, we saw uh, food prices increase 8.8% that month. That's the largest increase since 1981. This had a profound impact on the consumer's willingness to spend, and that had knock-on impacts for across the economy. So now, coming back to some of those drivers, we can point to the war in Ukraine, we can point to supply chain disruptions, but the other elephant in the room is really the weather. 
just coming back to that cocoa example, or even wheat and rice prices, these substantial changes in market pricing is being largely driven by tighter supplies of food commodities because of shifting weather patterns. In this case, the transition from La Nina to El Nino. So this is a very long-winded way of answering the question, uh, but it's this topic of risk and how do we deal with risk in a riskier environment and that risk is being caused by changes in weather patterns. Exactly. And one of the things that we can try to do is to change some of the levers with government and legislation. And we've spent a lot of time on this podcast you know, talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. We've talked about it with your colleagues, but you've focused on a lesser known piece of that legislation. Now, what is that? This is a really interesting time to be talking about the agriculture industry. Uh, Just before I get into the legislation, I I do want to come back to use your pun, set the table. When we're talking about it in terms of agriculture, the implications reach more broadly into food, restaurants, retail, energy. A lot of the evolution that's happening in the ag sector is coming as a result of demand from these downstream industries to be able to produce more of their food, their fiber, and to do so more sustainably. So as you mentioned, we've been spending a lot of time talking to investors about the Inflation Reduction Act and how there are some specific provisions within that that are driving a shift in how we produce grains, the feedstock for all of those materials. So I think, you know, other aspects of the IRA, Colin Rush and Noah Kay and I talk an awful lot about, and you guys have talked about that on the podcast before, I've been spending time talking about the Clean Fuels Production Credit, that's the 45Z that you mentioned. And the 45Z is a tax credit scheme that replaces an existing credit. This is known as the Blender's Fuel Credit, and it aligns the amount of credit based on the overall carbon intensity of the fuel that is being produced. So I'll give you an example here. Rather than saying, because this fuel is made from corn instead of, say, landfill gas, as an example, it should qualify for X dollars of tax credits, irrespective of the actual carbon footprint of the production process. Instead, what the 45Z does is it says, we don't care about what the specific feedstock is. Uh, We care about the carbon intensity of the production process. So for each one point of carbon intensity improvement below a certain threshold, we will give the biofuel producer a two cent a gallon tax credit. This may seem like a minor point, but it actually has major implications for the biofuel space and it puts fuel producers on an even playing field when they're competing for the goal of reducing carbon intensity. So if we talk about that in agriculture. Okay, so, but give me an example of that, you know, a a production example that we could understand. So bringing it back then to agriculture, in the United States, we will plant 94 million acres of corn this year. About half of that will be used to feed animals, dairy, livestock production. About 10% will work its way into the human food system. This usually comes from processed sweeteners and ingredients that's consumed directly. And the remaining half will go into the production of ethanol, so biofuel based on corn. Today, a typical ethanol producer has a carbon intensity score between 60 and 75. Uh, based on some of the measurement criteria. 
So let's just call it 60 to make it a little bit easier. That carbon intensity is made up of the energy needed to power the plant, the emissions produced in that process, and the upstream emissions from the production of the feedstock. So if I'm an ethanol producer, there are a handful of tools at my disposal that I can use to reduce the carbon intensity of my plant. I can source electricity from wind and solar. That's pretty easy. I can install combined heat and power. Uh, this can shave a few points off. But if I really want to make a dent in my CI score, uh, the two biggest things that I can address are the emissions from my production plant and reducing the carbon intensity of how the corn itself is grown. Gotcha. So the shift to carbon intensity sounds logical to me. Are, are companies noticing? Are they changing their behavior because of this? The short answer is absolutely. And I use this example of 45Z as just one concrete way in which we're aligning the incentives of the grower with an economic benefit that results in a better environmental outcome. But that's just a fuel example. Food is one that we all can feel very personally connected to. And there's some major CPG companies that are taking a stand when it comes to regenerative agriculture. So uh, just in the last couple of months, we saw Nestle announce that they would no longer work to achieve carbon neutrality goals. So what we often hear as net zero goals um, using offsets. So those are credits that are generated by one industry and used to offset carbon emissions in another. Instead, the company, this is, this is the owner of brands like KitKat and Haagen-Dazs and Gerber Baby Food. They are taking action to source their raw materials, these are primarily agriculture products, from growers using regenerative ag practices. This is a major CPG company taking a stand and saying we need to improve our supply chain, and we understand that that has to happen at the farm level. I'll give you just another quick one. Pepsi and Walmart, companies that need no introduction, announced a seven-year collaboration agreement. They are going to focus investments on supporting growers in pursuit of improving soil health and water quality. And they're doing this with the goal of accelerating the adoption of regenerative ag practices on farmland. This is a major step in the right direction toward aligning those economic outcomes and the environmental outcomes. That's great. And it also provides me with a seg that I wanted to go to, which is let's talk about then some of the companies that are actually implementing some of this change, some of the equipment companies, for example. That's right. Uh, where, where we often see friction in an industry, so where there could be some barriers to entry, we see opportunity for technology. Um, and so what kind of technology are we talking about? And I think, interestingly enough, it's a lot of the technologies that are really hot to discuss in the market today. So it's artificial intelligence, it's machine learning, it's robotics and autonomy. It's also things like CRISPR and alternative energy and 5G. Because the technological advancements that have happened in other areas of the economy, agriculture now has the tools to enable less waste, more precise applications of chemicals, and create plants that are more resilient to climate change. When we're evaluating this deep tech or hardware portion of our coverage, stocks like Deer and CNH and Agco, companies like Trimble, we're talking about companies that are using this type of technology, AI, for example, to decipher plants in the field, 
from weeds in the field and making a real-time decision to spray herbicide only on the weeds. This not only reduces the amount of excess herbicide that ultimately makes its way into the soil and eventually into the waterways, but it creates a return on investment for the grower. So when we do talk about these types of companies and the evolution of technology, these are companies that today, when we're evaluating the investment characteristics, they benefit when farmers make money on their crops and then go and spend it on new tractors and combines. It's pretty straightforward. When crop prices are up, farmers feel good, they spend more. And to, to bring us back to the beginning of the conversation, that's really what we've seen since late 2020. Crop prices have been strong, farmers are making money, and they're going to spend it on equipment. Problem is that equipment has been hampered by this supply chain disruption, so it has had a dampening effect on the current cycle. So now when we're looking at the commodity backdrop, it's much more weather driven. We're sort of coming full circle here. This cycle becomes more and more difficult to predict over time. So it means valuation considerations require a bit more nuance. We still believe we're toward the end of an equipment replacement cycle, but as we look at this changing weather pattern, we also see the potential for cycles to get shorter and less boom bust and more volatility and resiliency. What that means for these stocks is that buying patterns for farmers are shifting. At the same time, technologies like machine learning and automation that's occurring in the automotive space, it's moving at a much faster pace than traditional equipment. So these technologies, when applied in agriculture, can help farmers to reduce that incremental uncertainty created by this more volatile climate. We think this contributes to faster cycles, moving more purchases from whole goods into the aftermarket. And so when we're thinking about how to position these stocks, we're thinking about migrating from some of the simple peak to trough cycle heuristics to something that looks a bit more dynamic, mini cycles in the context of this broader secular trend forward. So does that mean, even though you said that we're towards the end of a purchasing cycle, I'm just recapping here, you do think that the cycles are going to change, they're going to shorten. Does that mean that you want to have a core weighting in those companies? Absolutely. And that that is how we position these stocks. We think that there are going to be trading opportunities around these cycles and, and some of what I'll, I'll call like the historical heuristics. But on a secular basis, this should be a core holding in, in your portfolio because of these major trends. Jane, we, we could we could choose not to buy a car next year, but we can't choose not to eat. And agriculture equipment, agriculture products, they are what feed us. Yeah. And it's interesting to me to think about innovation at those equipment companies. That's kind of an exciting change. Okay. Let's get a little more arcane here and talk about something you know a lot about and biotech seed technology, because you've talked about innovation there. You know, this is GMOs and all that. Can you spend some time talking about that part of the business? Yeah, absolutely. This is an equally exciting part of my coverage and one that is benefiting again from a lot of those same technologies, in particular AI, uh, identifying 
just the vast amount of data available to us in the genetics of plants. It's, it, it kind of blows my mind. Um, I will tell you, I, I don't have a chemistry or biology background. So in some ways I'm, I'm over my skis in talking about this, but the power of technology in this space is so tremendous. If we look back just a hundred years, the productivity of land in the United States has increased substantially. At the beginning of the century, farmers were producing 80 bushels of corn per acre. Today, that's 180 bushels per acre, the same acre. The land hasn't changed, but the amount that we can get out of the land has more than doubled. Historically, that's been accomplished by a sort of more is more approach to production agriculture, larger farms, more chemicals, larger equipment. Now we're seeing smarter equipment. What are we doing to address the chemical side? What are we doing to address the plant side? So two things that have happened since the early 1990s that drove a step change in productivity. The first was on the, the hardware side. I think we covered that pretty well. This enabled farmers to, to, to move their tractors more efficiently and created sort of a foundation for generations of technologies to come after that. Uh, the second change, though, was this introduction of biotech seed technology. This is commonly referred to as GMOs or, or genetic modified organisms. Just to, to level set there, a GMO will have a, let's call it a soybean, a soybean seed. And inside that soybean seed, you have the DNA. And inside that DNA, we insert genetics from another plant or another type of plant. So GMOs really changed the game in terms of creating a plant that was able to resist the threat of pests and competition from weeds. This was a major breakthrough in genetics and it led to better yield and more plants per acre. And it's a huge success if we measure it just by the improvement of productivity. So what we lost along the way were characteristics related to nutrition, ecosystem health, and climate resiliency. So today, thanks to advancements in compute power and semiconductors, you've got new biotech tools like CRISPR. We're really entering a new era of seed technology that eliminates the need to look outside of a plant's existing genetic bank and effectively accelerate the biological time span of traditional breeding so that we develop seeds that not only produce consistent yield in the face of increasing volatile conditions, but can actually be bred to be more nutritious or to require fewer chemical inputs. This has knock-on effects for human health, animal health, and it can help reduce the degradation on our water and soil. Um, so this is a major game changing, and we have some really interesting companies in this space that we're excited about. Yeah, give us a sense of, of those companies. Yeah, so Corteva is one of the largest in our ecosystem. And Corteva, you might know historically from its legacy products from Dow and DuPont. This is the result of those two companies merging, spinning off their agriculture division. And, and that means that Corteva has over 100 years of history in seed breeding technology. And they are breeding different types of crops that help withstand the pressures of changing climate. So one of the things that we think is really interesting that they've done is focus on something like a short stature corn. This is a corn that can better withstand winds that rip across, across the Midwest and cause billions of dollars in crop damage each year. 
Another one that we think is really quite timely is BioSeries. This is a smaller company. They're based in Argentina. This is the fourth largest producer of wheat in the world. And it's suffered substantial yield and economic loss due to crippling droughts and heat in the region over the last few years. So BioSeries has developed a type of wheat that can withstand drought. So this is something that would have taken decades to accomplish without the help of gene sequencing tools and big data analysis capabilities. And this is game-changing technology when you're talking about a more volatile climate. And in both of these cases, the technologies being developed enabled the farmer to make only small adjustments to their practice and to share in the economic benefits. And for us, that combination of small practice changes that drive an ROI and result in more beneficial environmental outcomes. And that's a powerful combination for easing those barriers to adoption. And not to be simple, but, you know, GMO, there are some negative implications that are talked about, talked a lot about the benefits. Is there any dark side of this that concerns you? For GMOs, I think that there is a degree of education that is required. I think choice is a really important aspect when we're talking about investors, when we're talking about uh, consumers. We like to have the option of choice and GMOs have been really powerful in ensuring that we can feed a global population. Now, what I'm encouraged by is some of the more current legislation or uh, discussions around genetic engineering. So this, again, would be using tools within the, the plant's own genetic bank. So you're not inserting anything else, something that basically could be accomplished through years of crossbreeding, traditional breeding, but we're accelerating that using tools like CRISPR. And recently the EU, which has been one of those regions that has been disinclined to adopt GMO policies, came out with a framework that said, you know, we're going to look at genetic engineering differently. We're going to separate this out from how we approach genetic modification, because we we understand that we have to do something to plan for this more volatile climate. And genetic engineering is a really powerful tool in that sense. So I am optimistic that sort of the needle is moving in the right direction in terms of providing choice, while also enabling us to feed a global population that is growing pretty substantially. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like it's one area where economic incentives, technology, innovation are all coming together at a very, very fast rate. Well, listen, I feel like I could spend three hours talking to you about this. So this will not be our last conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise once again on a fascinating topic. Thanks so much, Jane. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. We know your podcast listening options are endless, so we're glad you're spending time with us. Don't miss out on our next episode, and remember to subscribe today. Join our community to expand your thoughts on business, the markets, and the dynamic forces affecting them. It's time to talk future.